seated. All right, if you have your Bibles with you, if you have your Bibles with you, uh, let's turn to the book of Romans. Let's turn to the book of Romans together. Um, just a little commercial break. If anyone needs a bottle of water, we have some back there for you. And I, I know Darren, um, our associate pastor, is back there. He'd be happy to grab one for you if you need a water. Um, we're going to be in Romans. We're going to start out in chapter 12, Romans chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible, you should see one in the blue, uh, in the pew back in front of you. There should be a blue Bible there. Um, we would love for you to open that one up and read God's Word with us. Uh, God's Word is incredibly precious. God's Word uh, builds faith. God's Word renews faith. Um, God's Word reveals who He is and what He asks of us. Um, Listen, I know there might be a bunch of opinions about masks, but we can all agree that there's one good thing about wearing masks. Uh, You can stick your tongue out while I'm preaching and I'll never know. Um, So that's a good thing. Anybody doing that right now? Yeah, you better not. You better not. Okay. Romans chapter 12 is where we're going to start. Um, okay, so uh, big, the big question that we want to ask today, there's kind of a little question and then a big question. Um, we, we thought it would be appropriate, it would be a good thing to talk about. Uh, why is Trinity requiring masks? The, the governor has her executive order. Uh, so why does Trinity require masks? And that's kind of the little question. I mean, it might feel like a big question to us, but that's kind of the little question. The big question is, what is the believer's responsibility to God in their relationship to the government? Have you ever thought about that? I grew up in church my entire life, and I, I don't, I don't, nothing stuck. Maybe it was preached and taught, but nothing stuck to me about what's my responsibility towards the government. And if anything stuck, it almost came across as my responsibility is to really stand up for myself and really really make my opinions heard. And, if, and, it, and that, that's what kind of stuck with me. And again, I don't know if anybody did that on purpose or anybody was intentional there, but that's what stuck in the mind of 12-year-old Jordan growing up in church. And so to begin to answer this question... We're going to be in Romans chapter 12, and then we're going to be in Romans chapter 13 together. And so, to begin to answer this question, we're going to talk about what the book of Romans is about. We need to to talk about what is Romans. Romans is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome. And to understand this big question, to answer this big question about our responsibility to the government, we have to understand what the book of Romans is, is all about. We're going to start in in chapter 12, but what what are the first 11 chapters all about? Well, in the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans, we get some really intense, deep, joyful understandings of the good news of Jesus Christ. It's beautiful. It's an incredible picture of the mercies of God towards the people of God. It's incredible. First 11 chapters. If I were to summarize the first 11 chapters, it's really easy to do. We can talk about a few verses. It goes like this. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23. Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death. You go to work. 
You are paid for your work. What am I paid for by my work in sin? I am paid for by death. Physical death and spiritual death separated from God forever. The wages of sin is death. But, most beautiful word, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. I'm tempted to just preach on that verse alone. But wages are what we earn, but the gift of God is eternal life. We earn death. We earn hell. But the gift, it's a free gift. The gift of God. Not a wage, a gift. But God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That if we, Romans 10, 9 and 10, that if we confess with our mouth, Jesus is Lord. And believe in our heart that God raised Him from the dead. You will be saved. Isn't that awesome? Now, confess with our mouth. Jesus is Lord. That's an, important, that's an important sentence when we talk about our relationship to the government. Because Paul is writing to the church in Rome, a church that, for all we know, is right down the street from Caesar's palace and you know what you call caesar you call caesar lord when you're walking down the street you don't say hi good morning how are you if you're a good roman citizen you say caesar's lord you say caesar's lord so for paul calling jesus lord christians must go against calling anyone else lord calling anything else lord and then romans 10:13 for everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Isn't that good news? Anyone, you, can call upon the name of Jesus and be saved. I can call upon the name of Jesus and be saved. So that's the, that's the message of the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans. And then, starting in chapter 12, then the question is, in view of these great mercies of God, how then shall we live? Do you see the connection? How then shall we live in light of this great merciful salvation we have through Jesus Christ? How shall we live? And the, first, the, the next few chapters are all about how do we live with one another? How do we live with each other when we disagree? How do we live with the government? How do I live worshiping here and then down the street is Caesar's palace? How do, how do I live that way in view of this great gospel? And so we're only so so chapter 12, verse 1 turns us, turns us towards this application in our lives. And so let's read this together. This is going to set up uh, the next few chapters, it's going to set up our conversation about the government. It goes like this: chapter 12, verse 1, big number 12, goes like this. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Wow. Again, let's spend all our time on that verse. It's so big, so weighty. I appeal to you, brothers, 
by the mercies of God that we just saw in the first 11 chapters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. How then shall we live? The Christian life in view of the mercies of God is a life of is a life sacrificed for the good of the gospel. The Christian life in view of God's mercy is a life sacrificed. All this glorious gospel that we see in the first 11 chapters that, that captures us, that we must preach to ourselves every day to survive in this world. We preach to ourselves the gospel. I'm saved by the grace of God. He has taken me from an enemy to, uh, to, a, to a son of the Most High God. He has given me a glorious kingdom to look forward to. All these things that we see and that we live and we breathe in. How then do we respond to those things? The Christian life is like the lamb brought to the temple to be sacrificed. As the Lamb is sacrificed in the temple for the glory of God, so are we sacrificed. Now, there's a lot of implications for that, isn't there? I mean, there's implications about for that in your marriage. Sacrifice for your spouse. Lay down your husbands. Lay down your life for your wife. That's what Paul says in Ephesians. I mean, there's all kinds of practical applications to this. We are sacrificed for the glory of God. We are like the lamb brought into the temple to be sacrificed for the glory of God. However, we are unlike that lamb because that lamb doesn't know what's happening. That lamb is being pulled and poked and prodded up on the altar. What are we? We are to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. Unlike that lamb, this lamb, this lamb, is a willing, mindful, intentional sacrifice on God's altar for His glory. Unlike that lamb that sacrificed once, gone, dead, unlike that lamb, this lamb is a living sacrifice. So just in case the Romans got it in their minds that the best thing we can do is to go and, and get ourselves killed for the gospel, we might, and these Romans are going to die for the gospel. Many of them are going to die for the gospel under the Caesar that is living today. They're going to be dying. They're going to be lit on fire for his garden parties. They will die. But that is not the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal is not to, for us to go out today and seek our death for the glory of God. No, we are a living sacrifice. Meaning, every single day I place myself on the altar. Living sacrifice. My body as a believer should never leave the altar of sacrifice. I am dying to myself for His glory every day while living in this world now do we do that perfectly or do i fight and do i some days i stay in my lazy boy instead of getting up on the altar sure but what's the goal the goal for the believer in light of god's mercies is to offer our bodies every day lay down our lives for the glory of god jesus says something very similar in luke 9 
23, he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. We present our bodies as a living sacrifice and a holy sacrifice. A sacrifice that is set apart for the glory of God. There are many good things that we could sacrifice for. Country, community, family, friends. Those are all good things. And God calls us to sacrifice for those good things. But this sacrifice is different. This is a holy sacrifice that is set apart for the glory of God. Paul says this holy living sacrifice is acceptable to God which is your spiritual act of worship. Acceptable to God. I don't climb up on the altar so that I'm acceptable to you. Do you you get that point? Those of us who who love self-righteousness, people pleaser, I, I tend to get up on that altar sometimes so that you'll think good of me. No, it's not to be acceptable to you, it's to be acceptable to God. Doesn't matter what you think. I lay my life down daily on that altar to be acceptable to God. And this is my spiritual act of worship. The goal of our sacrifice, therefore, is to glorify the name of the God who has shown us mercy. Acceptable act of worship. And what are we motivated? What motivates us? Are we motivated to to get on that altar so that God will like me a little more? i got to earn something from God. Is that why I do it? No. What does he say? I appeal to you therefore, brothers. What's our motivation? By the mercies of God. I love the ESV version. That's the one I'm going to stick with forever, but I love what the NIV says. The NIV says, in view of God's mercies. It's like His, it's his mercy is, is to be before us all day, and I think about it, and I love it, I'm joyful in it. In view of His mercies, we offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. And then the rest of Romans for these next few chapters are going to show us what are the principles of living life as a daily living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God in view of His mercies. We can imagine the Romans reading the first 11 chapters of that incredible letter and going, man, we've got a great heavenly kingdom. We've got a great heavenly king. Look what our heavenly king has done for us. I'm going to do whatever it takes to give back to that heavenly king in view of his mercies. I love it. I'm right down the road from Caesar's palace. I know that. Listen, Rome is bad. Rome is bad. We've got a better king. You just told us, Paul, not to call Caesar Lord, to call Jesus Lord. I'm all about that. So you know what? Let's, let's not pay taxes to Caesar. Let's not pay taxes to Caesar. Let's just throw off the shackles of Rome and get Jesus as Caesar. Let's do it. Can you imagine that kind of attitude? We don't have to imagine too much because we've seen it in the book of Mark. 
Jesus comes and he feeds the 5,000 out of bread from his hands. Remember, we just, we just went over that. And the other gospels tell us after Jesus did that incredible miracle, you know what happened? They tried to make Jesus king by force. Jesus had to run away. We have, even as believers, we have this innate desire for rebellion. My five-year-old has it. My three-year-old has it. My wife has it. Her husband has it. We have this desire in us. A spirit of rebellion. Humans have a spirit tailored toward rebellion. And so then we ask this question, and it must be going on in Rome, because Jesus, the church of Rome, because Jesus then writes chapter 13. How do we live as a living sacrifice? When Caesar's down the road. Verse, chapter 13, big number 13 goes like this. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those that who, that res, who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Reverence to whom reverence is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Owed. Wow. Not a very complicated passage. There are complicated implications. Pretty straightforward passage. How do we live right down the road from Caesar? How do we live knowing we have a better king and a better kingdom? How do we live living sacrifices? Have a spirit of submission towards the government, not a spirit of rebellion. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Living sacrifices have a spirit of submission. They submit. And before we think that this is just a, a political passage and and Paul just wants us to, to, do, to do some politics with the government. No, Paul talks about submission all the time. Husbands, lay down your lives for your wife. Paul tells us, submit to one another, church. Paul tells us, submit to the church leadership, church. Paul tells us to submit to our loved ones. Submit to your parents. Submit, submit, submit. Submission is a big word in Scripture. And so that spirit that we see in the church, and we're kind of okay with most of the time. 
As I become a parent, I'm really okay with kids submitting to parents. I love that part. We're okay submitting to one another. It's a little more difficult sometimes to to submit to church leadership, and where it gets really difficult is when we are called to submit to the government. Living sacrifices have a spirit of submission. A spirit of submission embraces humility, peace, service, and lays down rights and privileges to the proper authority. And so who's the proper authority, Paul? Submit to whom? Submit to the governing authorities. Now some people go, wait wait a minute, well, we're a democracy. Maybe I can kind of get around that by saying, hey, we the people, right? We put the, we're the bosses, and so I really don't have to submit to those. They, they work for me. I don't think that works. 1 Peter 2.13 is really, it, it, it piggybacks off of this. Peter writes, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to the governors as sent by him. Living sacrifices have a spirit of submission to the governing authorities. And who is to have this spirit of submission? Every person. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. So, let's, let's knock out some of these questions that's running through your mind because it runs through my mind. Let's knock some of these out. Do we always submit in every situation? No, a spirit of submission does not submit every time the governor or the Caesar opens his mouth. That's not what we're saying here. A spirit of submission does not say we just submit, submit, submit blindly to everyone. When the government explicitly commands what God forbids or forbids what God commands, we do not submit. And as Americans, I'm not sure that happens very often. But that's when we break laws. That's when we don't don't submit. That's when we have a spirit of rebellion. When the government explicitly commands what God forbids or forbids what God commands. For instance, Daniel prayed when it was forbidden to pray. Daniel again, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did not worship the king when it was commanded by the government. Peter in Acts. Stop preaching this guy Jesus. You're making us all look bad. Peter says, I've got to obey God, not you. I've got to preach the gospel. John the Baptist told Herod he couldn't marry his brother's wife when it was forbidden to talk to the king like that. And the guy lost his head over it. Nuance and wisdom are needed for sure when we apply this to every area of our interaction with the government. For sure, that's the case. But it's usually not that difficult, is it? I think I make it more difficult because I love to have a spirit of rebellion.
When do we rebel? When do we forego this spirit of submission for a spirit of rebellion? Not out of our preferences, our comforts, and our desires. It's when the government tells us, you, you need to stop preaching biblical sexual ethics. You need to stop preaching that sex outside of marriage between a man and a woman is, is sinful. That's what this says. We need to stop preaching that. We can't. We can't. I can't forbid something. I can't, I can't stop doing something that God commands and is in God's Word. When do we rebel? When the Nazis came to Corrie Ten Boom's home and said, you hand over the Jews that you're hiding. I'm not doing that. Chinese churches or Chinese brothers and sisters right now that are required to attend state-approved churches. And state-approved churches will have state-approved sermons. And Chinese Christians go, I'm not doing that. That's not a spirit of rebellion. That, that's, that is rebelling for the glory of God. But I like rebelling for the glory of Jordan. What if the governing authorities are corrupt? Listen, we, we voted this person into office and man, they are just they're a scumbag. They're terrible. They, they believe this. They're bad. They're bad people. Well, do we have to submit even to them? Do we have the right to a rebellious spirit if I believe the person in authority is corrupt? The letter written to the Roman church was down the street from Caesar. We have never elected a person as bad as Caesar. We've never been under a government as bad as the Roman government. Nero was the Caesar. He's going to start lighting Christians on fire for his garden parties in a, short, in a breath's time after this. He had total, absolute authority. There would be a great fire in Rome and Nero, looking for a scapegoat, would blame the Christians. This government allowed infanticide. Unwanted babies were left on mountaintops and Christians would go and gather them. Worship of the Roman gods and worship of the emperor as God was everywhere. Caesar's Lord. Caesar's Lord. Do not worship Caesar is to be unpatriotic in Rome. That's, that's what it was. Sexuality. Sex was all about dominance. The strong took what they wanted to take. The real men of Rome would take whomever he wished. And no laws to protect that. Widespread acceptance and celebration of pedophilia. Widespread sexual promiscuity celebrated. And Christians go, that's not, that's not what God has for us. Sex is a mutually beneficial, equal act given by God to be enjoyed between a married man and a woman. So you can imagine, listen, we, we like to go find problems. I feel like we like to go find, hunt out problems. You've got to imagine how countercultural that church's existence was anyway. Don't go looking for problems. You've got enough problems just preaching the gospel. You've got enough problems 
Not celebrating promiscuity in your church. you got enough problems there. Don't go looking for more problems. No, our analysis of the level of moral good or moral evil in the authority doesn't remove our God-given responsibility to have a spirit of submission towards the government. In spite of the moral degradation of Rome, in spite of the persecution that will be coming down the road, God spoke through Paul as he wrote to the Roman church, telling the church in Rome to have a spirit of submission towards that evil corrupt government. Again, not when the government forbids what God requires or requires what God forbids, but have a spirit of submission. Why? Why a spirit of submission towards the government? Do we get a sense of why? Yes, we absolutely do. We get a sense of why we need to be submitting to the government. And it's really, really clear Let's read verse 1 again together. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that, that exist have been instituted by God. That's clear. Is that not clear? That's clear. That's really clear. God puts every king, Caesar, president, governor, and mayor in authority. Every single one of them. There is no authority, Paul says, except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Again, talking about those in authority, for He is God's servant for your good. Again, talking about those in authority, for because of this, you will also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God. <clears throat> the picture is, you pay taxes, it's kind of like paying your tithes because God is going to use those, those taxes for your good. <clears throat> the Caesar doesn't know that. He doesn't know he's God's minister, but in a way, he is. He is. God puts every king, Caesar, president, governor, mayor in authority for his divine purpose. What purpose? A million purposes. Purposes we can't see. We can't even begin to understand. But a million reasons God had Caesar in position. And whatever these purposes are, what we are promised is, like everything else, His purposes to put Caesar into power will bring about for His people eternal good and God glory. That's what's going to happen. That's why God does everything that He does. That is the bottom purpose of why God acts in the world. To bring us eternal good and to bring Him eternal glory. That's why God does everything. So we might not know the exact reasons for all these things. God might bless us. We might be able to see one or two of the million reasons. But that is why. Paul will tell them two chap three chapters before in Romans 9. He'll say, For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, remember Pharaoh, think of a bad government, Pharaoh, God's people enslaved, killed, enslaved by Pharaoh. God tells Pharaoh, for this purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Every authority figure is placed by God and will be used by God for the good of his people and the glory of his name. Even 
evil laws, even evil Caesars, evil presidents, evil governors, evil mayors, evil dictators, evil kings, evil queens, all of them God has put in place and he will turn their evil for our good and his glory. That's how it works. God is so good and holy, he is able to turn evil for good. That's how God does things. So, living sacrifices. So, living sacrifices. You and me, living sacrifices. When we submit to the government, don't be fooled. We are not submitting to men, we are submitting to God. Do you see that? That's a very important connection. It's a very important connection. Second reason, why do we submit to the government? Because God uses the government to bring about common grace. Have you heard that term? Common grace. There's particular grace. And that's what Paul talked about in chapters 1 through 11. Particular grace is saying, you're a sinner and I'm going to save you. Particular grace. The mercies of God towards the saved. Particular grace. Common grace is God's goodness poured out on humanity as a whole. I make the rain fall on the just and the, in, and the unjust. What is that? Sinners don't deserve rain from God. But He gives it anyway. Sinners don't deserve children, but He gives children anyway. Sinners don't deserve friends, but He gives friends anyway. God says, Rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Verse 3, verse 4, He does not bear the sword in vain. What does that mean? The government is about prosecuting and punishing evil. That is a part of the government. Peter says it this way in that passage, 1 Peter 2, I I said earlier. Be subject to the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor supreme or the governor sent by him, to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Why do we submit to the government? Well, governments are in authority by God for the common good. You have experienced God's, God's common grace from the government this morning. You've driven on roads with your driver's license given out out by the government so not every Yahoo who doesn't know how to drive can go out and drive. That's common grace. Yeah, the DMV. Who likes going to the DMV? Not me, but it's God's common grace that we don't have every Yahoo behind the wheel driving past my little girls playing in our front yard. That's common grace provided by God through the government. Every social security check is common grace. Every FDA drug that they have studied is common grace. Firemen, policemen, military protection is common grace. The worst form of government, even the worst government we can imagine, still provides common grace. The worst country, worst government that you can imagine still had policemen and firemen. Yeah, they did terrible things, but evil was punished to some extent. Rome, evil place, would provide bread for poor people. 
It's common grace. So, if that's true, then the worst form of government is anarchy. is no government at all. In a society with no authority to submit to, people suffer terribly. We see this in Scripture. Judges 17.6 In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. How would you like to live in that country? Where your neighbor across the street sees that you've got a nice new television and he says, hey, I need a nice new television. Goes and breaks in, steals your TV. you got no police. No one will help you. You want to live in that society? No, that's terrible. Genesis 6.5 The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So the point is, the government. we submit to the government because the government is God's common grace, common good. That even if it drives us crazy, even if there are evil things happening, there are common grace being poured out by God through bad governments. Even the worst, most corrupt governments in history, you will find laws to restrict evil. We're not to praise those bad governments. We're not to call them holy, but we're to appreciate that even there, God squeezes out good even in the midst of evil for sinners like you and me. Isn't that good news? So this idea to defund the police, I think, is a bad biblical... Is, is, when you read the Bible, I think you have to say... The defunding the police goes against this principle that God, God gives the government. And we can talk about reform. We can talk about all that stuff. But my goodness, restricting evil is a common good. It was said that in the Mongol Empire, the biggest empire the world has ever seen, stretched from East Asia to Eastern Europe. Huge empire. It was said, even that evil is an evil empire. Even in that empire, there was common good. It was said that you could put a pot of gold on your head, walk from China to Eastern Europe, and no one would touch you because the government was so heavily, was so heavy in favor of law and so heavily punished thieves that no one would touch you. That's a common good. Why do we submit God's sovereignty? He places, puts them in place. Why do we submit? Well, we see that they even give common good that we so easily forget. And why do we submit? Well, we submit that the government is often God's righteous wrath. God's wrath is poured out against evil often through the means of the government. Verse 4, but if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. We see all through Scripture God using evil, wicked sinners to punish evil. Went through Isaiah a few weeks ago. Assyria, Babylon, bad governments God uses for good purposes. We see that. Therefore, to have a rebellious spirit against the government is to have a rebellious spirit against the sovereignty of God, the common grace of God, and the righteous wrath of God. So, is there a consequence of a Christian's rebellious spirit towards the government? 
Is it just something that we can do or we should do, but it's not that big of a deal? Verse 2. Let's read it together. Verse 2. Chapter 13, verse 2. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. A misguided, rebellious spirit against the government is really a rebellious spirit against God. Will churches foster, is this part of the judgment, will churches foster a needlessly hostile relationship with the government due to sinful, rebel, or sinful rebellious spirit? You think churches in China get really nitpicky about, about what they follow and what they don't follow? Or are they more worried about, hey, we just want to meet and worship God? Will churches make, is this part of the judgment? Will churches make their evangelism more difficult by displaying a rebellious spirit? Yeah. Yeah. That Peter passage that talks about the same thing, he talks about submitting to all institutions, therefore the good. Then he says this For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you shall put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. What's he talking about? If churches get the reputation of having a rebellious spirit, you know what they're going to be saying? That's just those Christians. They get upset over every little thing. Or, oh, those Christians are just out to overthrow the government. They're out to take over everything. Peter says, put to silence those foolish, ignorant things because that's not true or that shouldn't be the truth. We've got a better kingdom. Oh, you don't need to listen to those guys, those Christians. They just have a rebellious spirit. They're always up in arms about something. Comes to mind, you remember the, the controversy? Hopefully you don't remember. Remember the controversy over Starbucks Christmas cups a few years ago? That it went from like Christmas trees, red and green, to just an all red cup. You remember that? And it was all over Facebook, all over social media. Everybody got up in arms. What are we doing with that? A Christmas? A, a cup? We're learning, we're teaching people that Christians just have a rebellious spirit. Rebel against Starbucks? I believe that part of our judgment is that we lose our prophetic voice in the culture when we display a rebellious spirit. What do I mean by that? And I... To be honest with you, I think we're too far down the river at this point. But I think when Christian churches get up in arms about every little thing like Starbucks cups, we lose our voice in the culture. If we are, a, if we are known for being a peaceful people, a loving people, if we are known for that and we stand up when we must stand up, if we're known for a spirit of submission and then we speak loudly, we're going to be heard. We're going to be heard about things that matter. I'm afraid we've lost our prophetic voice. So, what comes from... What's, what's, this, sum this up, Paul. What comes from this submissive attitude or the submissive attitude of a living 
sacrifice. What comes, what comes from this? Verse 7. Read it with me if you will. Well, what's, what's kind of the bottom line? Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Owed not as if earned by their righteous acts. Owed as if God put them in place for a reason. And I love God's reasons. Even if they're painful for me, I love God's reasons. I'm going to respect the president. First time I voted, all I heard was after Bush got in office. Is that the first time I voted? Anyway, I can't do the math. That's not my president. Then when Obama got in the office, conservative Christians, what did we say so often? Obama's not my president. And Trump comes into office, what are we hearing again? He's not my president. Christian, he is your president. Doesn't matter if it's Obama or Trump or Bush or whomever, he's your president. Why? Because God is your king. Jesus is your king, so he is your president. And Jesus is going to work through that president, that broken, often corrupt institution. He's going to work good through it. And someday we'll see exactly what that looks like. How do we do this? How do, we, how do we do this when it drives me crazy, when government drives me crazy? When, how do we do this? I think like all things in the Christian life, the answer is not try harder. The answer is bask in the good news of Jesus Christ. When we understand the glory of the kingdom that we are inheriting through Jesus, I'm a, I get a little less worked up about my kingdom on earth. I could submit to the government, even in difficult situations, because our king is all satisfying and our kingdom is a better kingdom. Let me read this for you as we close. Revelation 21, 1-7 talks about your, Christian, your kingdom. This is not your home. You're just passing through. This talks about your kingdom. If you are in Christ, this is yours already and we are going to find out about it later. This is already yours. This is what it says. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be His people. And God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall be there, there be any mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these, are the, are the trustworthy, these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. This is yours, Christian. It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. To the one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God, 
and He will be my Son. We can have a spirit of submission even, to the, even, even under the most awful authorities because we know that while we bow here, we bow as temporary commoners. For we will soon stand tall as the sons and daughters of the Most High God, clothed in glory, receiving our eternal inheritance, never to bow to anyone again but Him. So let us not sacrifice our heavenly inheritance for earthly, dirty, political gains. This is the Word of God for you, Christians. I'm ask the worship team to come up. We're going to enter a time of decision. We're going to enter a time of decision. What I want to do is I want to ask you, are you do you have an inheritance in that eternal kingdom? I want to ask you, are you a son or a daughter of the Most High God? I want to ask you, do you have a rebellious spirit? And not just to the government, but do you have a rebellious spirit towards God? Well, this is what we would like to do as a church. If that is you, we would like to call you. Come. Come. Call to the true King. He has promised to save all who call upon His name. He has promised to give an eternal inheritance, an eternal kingdom to all who repent and have faith in Him. We call you to that faith. Believe.